0: You don't need a lot of money to do more with it. Join Padma Lakshmi, Viola Davis, and Fidelity's Women Talk Money team during our free Women's History Month series as we get real about ways you can start planning and saving for the future you want. So you can feel good about your money every step of the way. Save your seat today at fidelity.com WHM. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services. Member NYSE SIPC. the middle of the
1: welcome to the you are not so smart podcast episode 94 <laughs> Dads work hard to keep their babies healthy with lots of love. Healthy foods. This delightful audio comes from the United States Centers for Disease Control. It's a public service announcement that they produced. And the idea here is to encourage parents to vaccinate their children. Nothing protects babies better from 14 serious diseases by age two. The CDC produces lots of these sorts of PSAs for all sorts of things carbon monoxide poisoning, mold, canned food safety, and so on. But one of their most intense efforts is their ongoing struggle to get people to vaccinate their kids and, in the flu season, to vaccinate themselves.
0: No, I had no
2: idea. I've been so busy at work. But my coworker's toddler was in the hospital with flu, too.
0: Is Bill okay? It was pretty serious and aggravated his asthma. Bill got sick quickly with a high fever. Fortunately, Jeanette got him to the doctor right away. The doctor said it was flu and prescribed a medication that helped him get back on his feet. I didn't know. When
1: it comes to vaccines, the CDC makes all sorts of stuff. Radio spots and YouTube videos, website banners and buttons and press releases and social media toolkits and much more. There's just so much material that... It's honestly overwhelming when you visit their website and kind of browse through it all, because they aren't just trying to get people to get vaccinated. They're also trying to dispel rumors and correct misinformation and to calm fears. There's just so much out there, so many misconceptions floating around about vaccines and autism and whether they actually give you the thing they're supposed to protect you against that... Changing the minds of people who are staunchly anti-vaccination has become a big part of the CDC's mission.
2: ...that helped him get back on his feet. Well, thank goodness. That Jeanette got her flu shot. Because, you know,
0: she's expecting. I guess that was another thing you didn't know.
2: A message from the Department of Health and Human Services.
1: Americans don't get flu shots. They just don't do it. Only 33% of adults ages 18 to 64 got their flu shot in 2012. And the target is 80%. The CDC wants 80% of adults by 2020 to get their flu shots every year. In fact, 43% of Americans, of American adults, believe that the flu vaccine gives you the flu, which is not true. And then there are the anti-vaxxers, those people who think that Vaccines are poison, that they're dangerous, that they cause autism and all sorts of other stuff. These aren't a giant group of people. They are about maybe 6% of the population in the states where they are the most numerous. But just those few people not vaccinating their children can cause a lot of problems in the community. And they are very active very angry, very organized on social media, and they have conferences where they fly across the country to meet with one another, and sometimes they have celebrity support as well, and they might even have the support of the current president of the United States, based on some of the things that he said in the past. So the CDC has a lot of work cut out for them when it comes to correcting people's misinformation from dispelling misconceptions. And that got scientists Brendan Nyhan and Jason Reifler to thinking, hmm, I wonder if those PSAs
2: work. Well, there was good news and bad news. That's
1: Brendan Nyhan. He is a professor of political science at Dartmouth.
2: In our research on political misinformation, we had found it was very difficult to correct misperceptions using factual or scientific information.
1: In 2006, Nyhan produced a paper that made waves all throughout the political science and psychology communities, and he published it with his co-author, Jason Reifler.
0: I'm Jason Reifler. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Exeter.
1: So in this study, they created fake newspaper articles about polarizing political Issues. Now, this was 2006, so the issue of the day was the war in Iraq. And these articles were written in a way which would confirm a widespread misconception about certain ideas in that war in American politics. As soon as a person read one of these fake articles, they then handed over a true article, one that would correct the misinformation in the first. So, for instance, one article suggested that. The United States had found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The next one, though, it said, no, actually, the United States never found those weapons of mass destruction, which was the truth. What they found was for people who were strongly supportive of the war, of the administration, who were really, really conservative, they didn't just resist the information, they didn't just discount it. In fact, After reading that there were no weapons of mass destruction, they reported being even more certain than before that there actually were. They doubled down on their original beliefs, and they felt even more strongly than people who had not been corrected at all. Nyhan and Reifler coined a new term in psychology, the backfire effect.
0: In short form, the the backfire effect is simply... When you're confronted with something that you don't want to be true, that you engage in um, effortful processing of information to argue against this thing that you don't want to be true. And in the process, you may convince yourself so strongly that the counterattitudinal information is wrong, that you've come to believe things even more strongly. When
1: you hear information that agrees with your beliefs, you tend to accept that information and just move on with your life. But when you hear information that threatens your beliefs, you pause. And as we learned in the last episode, if it threatens your very identity, then the effort you put into resisting that information to protecting yourself by creating new, better arguments against it, it can end up causing you to strengthen your original position. So for the people trying to correct you, to give you facts, to get rid of the myths in your head, they can end up causing more harm than good. And that is what Nihan and Reifler thought might be happening with the efforts to educate people about vaccines.
2: And that raised the question whether the same uh, problems would arise in health, specifically with vaccines, where there are, are common misperceptions people hear uh, involving myths like the claim that vaccines cause autism, which has been discredited and and found to be false. The typical response has been to to use facts to try to change people's minds and to to counter that misinformation, Uh, we can find examples of of people in the scientific and public health community using that approach. And we wanted to find out whether it was actually effective at meeting their goal, which is ultimately to promote vaccination as a way to protect the public health.
1: To test the effectiveness of these PSAs, Nihan and Reifler brought together a group of parents with children under the age of 18. And they asked them, these parents, about their attitudes toward vaccination, and specifically this measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine that was getting so much press. A week later, they returned to these subjects and asked them to fill out a second survey. But then they also divided them into four groups and introduced them to four different kinds of messaging. One group received information about autism. A second learned about the dangers of measles, mumps, and rubella. A third looked at pictures of children suffering from those diseases and the final group read a true story about a 10-month-old child that contracted the measles in a pediatrician's waiting room and then suffered from a 106-degree fever.
2: So the first approach that we wanted to test was that, that approach of simply giving people factual and scientific information and, and trying to convince them that uh, vaccines are safe and effective that way. So we used information drawn directly from the Centers for Disease Control website that basically listed a bunch of studies saying that vaccines don't cause autism. So it was very important for us to use realistic stimulus material. So we took these directly from the Centers for Disease Control, and we wanted to see if uh, providing evidence that studies don't support that claim would make parents more likely to vaccinate. Uh, You know, that's the kind of claim you'll often hear. Uh, You know, we have to get the science out there so people know that this this claim is false. Uh, The other messages we tested were intended to highlight the dangers of the diseases that vaccines prevent. So we were focused specifically on the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine, which is the one that had been falsely accused of causing autism. And so we tested three messages about the d- dangers of those diseases. Uh, one was uh, textual information of the sort that's provided on the handout that parents get at their doctor's office when their child was given this vaccine. Uh, so it's information about the risks of the disease and the potential symptoms of, of measles and mumps and rubella. Uh, and then we had two other ways to, to potentially illustrate that danger in a more dramatic form, one of which was uh, images of children with these diseases, which many people ha- have not seen because the vaccines have been so effective at at uh, eliminating uh, cases of them. And then second, uh, a narrative about a single Infant who became very ill with measles, again, developed by the CDC and intended to communicate in a more relatable way um, why you should get your child vaccinated to prevent this sort of thing from happening to your child.
1: And so what did you find of these messages? Which ones were effective and how effective were they?
2: The good news was that the corrective information actually was successful at reducing belief in the myth that vaccines cause autism. We found that parents were less likely to say that vaccines cause autism after they got that corrective information. But when we looked at the bottom line from a public health perspective, which is whether parents would vaccinate a future child, which we call the intent to vaccinate, we find that uh, none of those messages about the dangers of disease that we described increased parents' intention to vaccinate. And in fact, that corrective information... Saying that vaccines don't cause autism actually made parents less likely to say they would vaccinate a future child. That effect, moreover, was concentrated among the parents with the least favorable attitudes towards vaccines, which is precisely the group we'd expect to try to resist that information or think of who who might bring other concerns or questions they have about vaccines to mind in response to it.
0: You know, we don't have any great, um, this is the, you know, the consistent, really depressing, feature of my work is that um um things don't really do all that much in a in a helpful way so the the correction while it works in the correct direction for um The sample as a whole, among the most vaccine hesitant in the sample, it decreases the likelihood of vaccinating future children.
1: This is the danger of the backfire effect. Messages designed to help from the people armed with the information most vital to those who need to hear it can push those people away just by sharing their knowledge, just by explaining to people why they are wrong. In the vaccine correction study, the people who believed there was a connection to autism or that vaccines were simply scary and dangerous but who did not receive any information to the contrary, were actually more likely to vaccinate their children than similarly concerned parents who did get that information. The percentage of those parents who said they planned to vaccinate plummeted.
0: Those who received the correction and are least favorable towards vaccines, it it decreases. And it decreases in a non-trivial way. It goes from about 70% likelihood of saying they will vaccinate the future children down to between about 45, down to about 45%.
1: So why does this happen? And what can we do about it? What are the psychological mechanisms underpinning this potentially harmful, possibly dangerous, and incredibly frustrating mental phenomenon? All that after this commercial break. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know What is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For several decades now, psychologist Peter Ditto has been investigating how human beings make sense of new information.
3: I'm uh, Peter Ditto. I'm a professor of psychology and social behavior at the uh, University of California, Irvine. I guess I'm a, I was trained as a social psychologist and, you know, I often identify now as, as a political psychologist as well.
1: So Today, Ditto runs a research community at UC Irvine called the Hot Cognition Lab. So my lab at UCI is,
3: we call it the Hot Cognition Lab, and that's the idea that people think emotionally, that we have this image of ourselves sometimes as as reasoning through facts, but people's uh, affective responses, their hopes, their fears, uh, their anxieties play themselves out in judgment uh, the same way. And so I've been interested in how it is that these things like affect uh, and intuition, organize cognition, and how they uh, very often come to uh, have us believe the things that we want to believe, the things that we wish that were true.
1: In the 1990s, Ditto and his colleagues conducted a study that perfectly illustrates the sort of reasoning that has been the focus of his career. In it, he brought together a group of college students and, using tiny strips of construction paper, convinced some of them that they might have a terrible disease.
3: So they came in thinking that it was going to be a study about, I think, personality characteristics and health, psychological characteristics and health. That we were going to ask them some uh, personality questions, some attitude questions. We were going to give them a bunch of different medical tests, and then we were just kind of, you know, as scientists are want to do, just interested in kind of how these things relate to one another. What psychological things relate to which medical things. So it gave us sort of this cover to give them both medical tests and asked them psychological kind of questions.
1: The students filled out questionnaires and then read some background material about a completely fake and very scary sounding disorder that Ditto and his team made up.
3: Right. So the medical condition that we made up was called TAA deficiency uh, or thioamine acetylase deficiency. We told them there was an enzyme in people's body that, uh, and again, we manipulate There's a whole bunch of different variations of this. The the essential story is, oh, there's this enzyme in your body, and if you don't have it, then it makes you relatively susceptible to a complex of mild but irritating pancreatic disorders, as think the way we described it. And, of course, the enzyme was in your saliva, and so it allowed us to do a simple little saliva test to see if the enzyme was in,
1: uh, in your body. The subjects then spit into cups and received little yellow strips of paper. And they were told, dip this little strip of paper into this cup and, and here's where they were divided, half were told, if the strip turns green, well, you probably have this terrible pancreatic disorder. The other half were told, if it turns green, you don't have the disorder. And here's the thing, it never turns green. It's just construction paper.
3: We were really interested in this idea of how much information it would require people uh, to, uh, get to before they were willing to accept a negative diagnosis. And so we, we told them, you know, basically if it stays yellow, that's bad, means you're unhealthy or the other half if it stays yellow means it's good. It means you're healthy. And then we told them also what, yeah, what's important is, is uh, the test should, if it, if it's going to turn color, it's going to turn color within about 20 seconds. So, and then after that, what's important, as soon as you know your diagnosis, it's really important that you take that, test trip and put it into this little envelope and seal it up so we have it for our
1: research. The idea here was to give these people a time constraint to say it's really important you do this as fast as you can. So that way they could measure how fast they did do it, how long they took before they said, okay, I accept these results.
3: Right. And so we simply had a camera uh, surreptitiously videotaping them while they were doing this. They did this test by themselves in a room. And we essentially just sat there and timed uh, how long they sat and stared at this yellow strip of paper that's never, ever going to change color. How long did they have to stare at it before they were willing to accept that it was never going to change color? And uh, you know, essentially what, you know, what we found and what's been found lots of different times now is that people will stare at that strip, that strip longer if they think that yellow means you're unhealthy.
1: Now, for both groups, they said that the reaction should take at most 20 seconds. But the people who were told the strip would turn green if they were safe tended to wait much longer to see the results, far past the time they were told it would take. When it didn't change colors, 52% of those people retested themselves. Now, the other group, the ones for whom a green strip would be very bad news, they tended to wait those 20 seconds and move on. Only 18% of those people retested
3: right so they're waiting for this thing to turn they're hoping it's going to turn they're hoping it's going to turn uh and so they'll look at it for you know 30 seconds a minute longer on average if they think it's bad uh that it's staying green now the other that's saying yell now the other interesting thing we did is we also coded the kind of behavior they didn't just sit there and stare at it Right. That might be, Oh, well, gee, it's just kind of a deer in headlights effect. Maybe they're not, but they weren't, they were very active about it. So they would, we counted how many times they re-dipped it. Did they ever re-dip it, you know, in this test again, you see them on the video, they're re-dipping it. They're looking at it. they they're turning it over, looking at the back. Uh, you know, then some of them will, uh, you know, sp- we also coded where they spit again, testing another sample. And they did that, you know, at least uh, a couple of people stuck it right in their mouth. Uh, you know, cut out the middleman, let's do that. Again, all these things were much, all these rechecking behaviors are much more uh, common if uh, if they thought that yellow meant bad. They're checking it. They're checking They're checking it. A couple of people even uh, took an extra test strip because we had a bunch of them in there and stuck it in their pocket. And I assumed they're bringing it home for further investigation.
1: The people in the other group, they didn't do this. They didn't wait around. They didn't recheck. They didn't take strips home. And that's because they got the information that they wanted. They went searching for information with a goal in mind, with an emotional investment. And when they got what they were looking for, even though they could have kept testing, they didn't. Ditto and his colleagues call this difference in behavior motivated skepticism.
3: People, when they get a bad diagnosis, something they don't want to believe, they're much more active, thinking through it skeptically, trying to retest it and find out if it's something you want to believe, that you're healthy, right? You kind of very quickly can say, yeah, that looks
1: good. Boom. And you move on. As Ditto told me, it takes you one doctor to tell you that you're healthy. It takes you three doctors to convince you that or not. Or as psychologist Daniel Gilbert said when he was talking about this research, quote, when our bathroom scale delivers bad news, we hop off and then on again just to make sure we didn't misread the display or put too much pressure on one foot. When our scale delivers good news, we smile and head for the shower. Ditto says that we do this for everything, not just with health information. Whenever we are confronted with anything that we would rather not believe, we challenge it. We resist it. But when we receive info that bolsters our beliefs, that confirms our ideologies, that strengthens the validity of our identities, we accept it without much thought. We are selectively skeptical.
3: It was always conceived of that way by me, that this was not a process that was just about medical decision-making. It's just that medical decision-making is a great context to study it because people care so much. They care deeply. They want to be healthy rather than sick. But the same kind of motivations you you see in politics, you want your side to be right and good, and you want the other side to be uh, you know wrong and, and, and not so good. And so those same motivations come up. And that same process, I, I think this motivated skepticism process is really central to the way we build these different factual beliefs that you see in liberals and conservatives. So we tend to take in information. If it comes in and, and it reinforces what we want to believe, we very quickly accept it to be true. If we get information we don't want to believe, we are much more skeptical and we you know, look for – uh, you know, see if we can't disconfirm it, we, we search for it. But it's this kind of passive process.
1: In the previous episode in this series, we interviewed some neuroscientists who said that their research shows our brains protect our cherished beliefs, the ones we feel are connected to our identities, as if they were our very flesh and blood. And Ditto says that because of that, all of us, no matter our political persuasions, are selectively Skeptical, especially of the news media. And unlike confirmation bias, which affects us when we go looking for information, encouraging us to stop when we think we've found that which confirms our beliefs, motivated skepticism mostly runs in the background, passively, allowing in without any question the information from the outside that confirms our beliefs, but coming alive when we feel threatened, encouraging us to go seeking disconfirmatory evidence, but just for those things. We'd rather not be true.
3: Best example, you know, I I get these all the time. So I have you know Facebook's this wonderful um, uh, forum because I've got all my intellect, all my you know kind of college professor friends, and I've got my high school uh, buddies uh, from sports and uh, surfing. You know, which is I grew up in Southern California, and uh, you know, so from I will get a you know Facebook share that says some horrible thing about Obama or some horrible thing about Michelle Obama that they quickly, you know, that they shared with me because they I'm, they felt great about it. And they see it, they go, oh, here's this terrible story here. Let's share this. I look at it on Snopes, you know, three minutes. I can tell it's completely bogus. Right. You know, and, and so I go, oh, no, no, that's wrong. And I send back to them, oh, you know, this isn't true. And again, the interesting thing is when you get something, again, that comes across. And I think you know, liberals and conservatives both do this. Right, everybody's doing this. You get something you really want to believe, this terrible thing about Trump, maybe, and then you fire it off really quickly, and then somebody else says, you know, that's not really true, or it's more complicated than that. And that's exactly the same process. The quick share, you know, that's motivated skepticism. Uh, you know, that you don't, you're not skeptical of those things, and then you know, the, the fact checking and all that is that, you know, that's the other side. When you get, you're much more likely to fact check something that you don't want to believe than something you do.
1: A great example of selective skepticism is this website that I really like. It's called literallyunbelievable.org, and they collect Facebook comments of people who believe that the articles in The Onion are real. And if you've never heard of The Onion, it's a satire newspaper, and so, of course, nothing in it is real. But articles about Oprah offering a select few the chance to be buried with her in an ornate tomb or the construction of a multi billion dollar abortion supercenter or... NASCAR, awarding money to drivers who make homophobic remarks, are all commented on by liberals and conservatives alike with the same sort of, yeah, that figures, outrage. As the psychologist Thomas Gilovich said of this behavior, when examining evidence relevant to a given belief, people are inclined to see what they expect to see and conclude what they expect to conclude. For desired conclusions, he said, we ask ourselves, Can I believe this? But for unpalatable conclusions, we ask, Must I believe this? And that's why Ditto's work is cited by the researchers we spoke to at the beginning of this show. To understand the backfire effect, we must understand the umbrella term that includes motivated skepticism. In psychology, thanks in no small part to Ditto's work, there is a rich literature for the many kinds of reasoning that take place when we want something to be true. And the term for all of that is called motivated reasoning.
3: Well, cognition can be motivated in lots of different ways. So You could be motivated to have the correct answer. Uh, and there's times when, we, when there's a lot on the line and we'll think really hard and, and tend to process information, sometimes in a very unbiased way because we're motivated to have an accurate answer. I'm really interested in these kind of directional motivations when we uh, want to have a particular answer, not just the right answer, but we favor one answer over another, and that's that's the kind of kind of motivated reasoning that I'm interested in. When our preferences change uh, our inferences.
1: Ditto explained to me that as much as we might like to believe that we can flip a switch and become dispassionate, coldly logical evaluators of facts and figures, we simply can't divorce ourselves of the emotional side of cognition. And it's important to remember this. Emotion is not separate from cognition. Emotion is cognition. The same brain that generates calculus and astronomy also generates envy, fear, anger, disgust. The work of every great scientist and engineer was as emotionally motivated as that of a poet or a musician. Which means when a president or a lawmaker or a general or a doctor is evaluating raw data, working out what to believe and what not to believe, it is almost impossible to be impartial, no matter how much that person might like to believe that he or she is striving for neutrality. In fact, the very belief that you are impartial is itself fraught with emotion and bias. In other words, there's no escaping motivated reasoning. Our ideologies, our passions, color all of our thinking.
3: A lot of my original work was about uh, medical decision-making and, and health uh, decisions that we make and, and things like denial. So if you uh, get confronted with a medical diagnosis that you don't like, that you might deny that. Now you can see that the same sort of processes operate in political context in these partisan motivations. So people want to believe that their political views are correct and that others, you know, uh, challenging political views are incorrect. And that changes Uh, Facts and very often biases the way we process uh, political
1: information. As we discussed in the previous episode, for non-political facts, for ideas not connected to our identities, we tend to accept corrections and move on. When we learn that the Great Wall of China isn't the only man-made object that can be seen from space and it's actually pretty difficult to see it compared to other objects, we update our brains and move on. For political information, however, for facts connected to our identities, we resist. And the evidence from Ditto's work suggests that when we resist, we do the same things we do on the internet when we feel like our beliefs have been challenged. We search for a way out, fact-checking, looking for other sources, finding good counter-arguments from eloquent speakers and confident pundits. And it is this process, this effortful process, to resist that creates the backfire effect.
2: So there's a, there's a growing literature on what's called motivated reasoning and the ways that people tend to process information with a bias towards their existing views or predispositions.
1: That's Brendan Nyhan again.
2: One of the mechanisms of that that we think is, is likely to be producing this effect is called counter-arguing. You hear information that seems to contradict some view you hold or uh, undermine um, the standing of some group you affiliate with, and you think of reasons why that information isn't valid. And in the process of bringing those to mind, you may end up actually convincing yourself more of that belief that you previously held than if you hadn't been challenged in the first place. Uh, and so the information we give people may have unintended consequences. We found this in in, in our study of political misinformation that corrective information sometimes made people double down on the belief that we were trying to correct. And so for the group that was most vulnerable to that misperception, the one that had an ideological affiliation that might make them sympathetic to the false or unsupported claim we were trying to debunk, giving them corrective information seemed to provoke them into uh, rationalizing that belief, defending it, and thereby made them more likely to hold that misperception rather than less.
1: Reifler and Nyhan both said they believe that if you try to correct someone who you know is wrong, you run the risk of alarming their brains to a sort of existential epistemic threat, a risk of decoherence. And if you do that, when that person expends effortful thinking to escape the threat, that effort will strengthen their beliefs instead of weakening them. And one of the reasons this feels so counterintuitive is that, as Ditto explained to me, we end up playing a game of whack-a-mole with facts and figures that aren't really the issue being argued. As in the vaccine study, the erroneous belief that vaccines caused autism was not the problem. The core belief was deeper than that. It was something more like, foreign, bad, big pharma medical thing and my child without my control is bad. Because remember... Nihan and Reifler successfully debunked both the autism link and the misconceptions about the flu vaccine. But in both cases, the belief that vaccines are bad remained. And, often, deepened.
0: Even when it worked, that is, um, they changed compared to a control, they were less likely to say that the vaccines caused these side effects. They still were less likely to engage in the behavior Um, the pro-health behavior that we would want them to engage in.
2: We think that challenging them with that information, saying, um, this thing you might have heard about why vaccines aren't safe isn't true, may be interpreted as a kind of challenge to their views. They may say, well, fine, vaccines don't cause autism, right? That's what we found when we looked at their beliefs about that particular myth. But our interpretation is they may think of other concerns or hesitations they have.
0: They're now going through all of the arguments as to, in their own head, why they are against vaccines, why they think vaccines are unsafe, what they think the problems with vaccines are.
2: Well, maybe it's not uh, a a cause of autism, but I've heard these other stories that really give me concern, uh, that really make me concerned about whether vaccines are safe.
0: They are, on the one hand, moving in the direction that we would want on the factual question, about whether these vaccines cause these specific side effects, and they don't. But they still have reaffirmed in their own minds why they believe what they believe and why they continue to be anti-vaccine.
2: And so in the process of bringing those to mind, people may end up in a less favorable place towards vaccines than if they got no information at all. So these, these effects, you know, we should make clear are, are from an experiment where we're comparing the parents who saw that corrective information to a control group. So relative to not seeing any information at all, it's actually worse to show people that corrective information, not better.
1: Ditto explained that this same game of belief whack-a-mole appears when we try to dissuade people from misconceptions and bias when discussing politics.
3: Right, and that's this great insight about the way people think. Again, we and it, it contrasts with our labors, right? We have this sense of, well, yeah, people have reasons, and then they— you know, Develop preferences or, or you know, behavioral strategies or whatever based on those things, and you know, or people think about when they think about politics, they're thinking about policy, and they you know, to a large extent, those sort of beliefs, policies, the specific content of those is sort of interchangeable. People can you know move those around, change them, and that and the affect will stay. I mean, and so you, you see that quite a bit in people, and it's kind of it's kind of at some level it's shocking maybe when you see it but it's it's extraordinarily human and it should uh to most people you should look at that and say oh yeah I get it <laughs> I do that too probably
1: So we all do this, but why? I mean, I I know there's no answer yet to that question, but based on your expertise, why, why do you think we do this? What is the adaptive function of thinking in this way?
0: Um, so I think that there are... So on the one hand, this is horribly negative, right? So when things that are obviously untrue, and we try and tell people that things are untrue, they don't accept it, they reject it, and we can't get them to update their beliefs about the world. We can't get them to change their behaviors in positive ways. Um, In that respect, it seems really terribly negative. Um, There probably are positive sides as well, because this means... When we do believe things that happen to be true and people try and convince us that they're not true, those same basic mechanisms um, are what allow us to resist and argue against that um, information that's not true. So there probably is some positive um, adaptive element to it.
3: Yeah, the adaptiveness question is a really interesting one, uh, and and motivated reasoning sort of dances on this tightrope of adaptiveness in the sense that if we only believed what we wanted to believe, that would be adaptively problematic, right? I would like to believe I can fly. Uh, I'd like to believe that I'm a rock star. I'd like to believe that I have a better head of hair. There's a lot of things that I'd like to believe that, and some of those might get me in trouble, and some of those just might not comport with reality well, right? At the same time, motivated reasoning kind of makes sense and, and it isn't uh, and particularly the form that it comes in usually uh is is uh adaptive and that's what my work has always tried to capture is is how is it that you could – or can you develop a model of human thinking that captures the idea that how people believe what they need to believe and believe what they want to believe at the same time and sort of these reality constraints that we work in that we want to believe certain things right but we're constrained by reality or need to be sensitive to it at some level but it also thinking hard about negative information it isn't that people just think their way out of it they're thinking about it hard and so if the information if you just can't think your way out of it or if the bad information keeps coming you will eventually accept it as true and that's what we kind of find it just takes you it's not that people completely deny information it just takes them more information to convince them of something they don't want to believe than to convince them of something that they do
1: I know I'm leaving you on a down note here, but just consider this the Empire Strikes Back of our three-part series because the next episode will address what I think is the natural question anyone would have after all of this. What do we do about it? How can we create a better world knowing what we know about motivated skepticism and motivated reasoning and the backfire effect? In two weeks, that will be the focus of our final episode exploring this phenomenon that has always been with us and will always be with us. And that's, that's why I make this show. In this new news and information environment with Google and social media and the threat of filter bubbles and echo chambers, I believe it's more important than ever to have a psychological literacy. And the good news is we know a whole lot about many of these things. And in particular, this challenge, the backfire effect, we know quite a few things. There are clear, actionable strategies for dealing with it, and you'll hear all about them in the next episode. Before we go to credits, here's some contact info. Brendan Nyhan, you can find him on Twitter, at Brendan Nyhan, it's B-R-E-N-D-A-N-N-Y-H-A-N. Jason Reifler has a website, it's just jasonreifler.com, that's J-A-S-O-N-R-E-I-F-L-E-R. And you can keep up with Peter Ditto's Hot Cognition Laboratory by going to this website. And this is one of those university addresses, so it's kind of clunky. Get ready. Here it is. sites.uci.edu slash Peter Ditto Lab. And Ditto is D-I-T-T-O. Okay, up next, the closing cookie segment, and then the end credits. starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other things? On C- each episode yeah, of the cookie. You Are Not So Smart That's podcast, cookie cookie. I eat a cookie baked C- from a recipe C- C- sent in by you, by someone out there who's a fan of the show, sends us a recipe. You can send that to david at so smart.com. And if we use the recipe that you sent in, you will get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book or the sequel, You Are Now Less Dumb. And this episode's cookie, I have the paper in front of me, comes from Sarah Hendrickson. She writes, greetings from the cookie sorceress. This one is one of my favorites and has been requested many times from my coworkers and family members. Enjoy. I hope you enjoy and thank you for your lovely podcast. She wrote that after the, uh, the recipe. The recipe is flour and oat bran, baking soda, espresso powder, vegetable oil, sugar, eggs, vanilla and Dark Chocolate Melts. This is a really interesting cookie because, uh, as you may know, Amanda, my wife, makes all the cookies, and these actually start out as regular, strange sort of oatmeal coffee cookies, and then you uh, smush them into chocolate and let them harden so that there's a chocolate bottom and a cookie top to these. So let's let's taste one. This is, This is a cookie that contains coffee, by the way. Lots of coffee. So eating it, With coffee is, of course, recommended. It's like that uh, KFC sandwich with chicken as the buns. What will you be having with your coffee, sir? Mm, Coffee. Edible coffee. Trapped inside a cookie. Thank you. All right, here we go. Mmm. Snappy. Mm, Now, this this cookie has quite a crunch and a snap. Mmm. Yeah. It tastes like an animal cracker. Mmm. But very chocolatey and cook and coffee-y. It tastes like an animal cracker that just got back from a crowdfunded hike across the Outback. Mmm. This is a cookie that has gone on a walkabout and returned with a lifetime of stories. Mmm, and a knowledge of tourniquets and emergency water collection. Mmm. That is good. Oh, Sarah Hendrickson. A book is on its way. <laughs> That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For previous episodes of the show, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get podcasts. Or to boingboingpodcasts.com, where you can find more great podcasts just like this one. If you would like to support the show, to help keep it going, to make it bigger and better, and expand what we can do, go to Patreon. Patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart.com. Are not so smart, pitch in, become a patron. Uh, all the info is there on social media Facebook, you are not so smart, Twitter, at not smart blog, and I am at David McCraney. And you can also play around with Google. Plus. Who knows? Who knows what will happen if you do that? The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music, some of it was by Drew Garraway, some of it was by Banjo Pocalypse.